Um, I wanted um, to talk about uh, codependence and renunciation. Great topics. <laughs> um, and I, speaking of dresses, um, I wanted to start with a story of um, this incredible dress that my sister Sandra bought when we were teenagers. It was purple and it was that shiny material and green and purple and had lots of flowers and was really slinky. And uh, we were going to a party that night. And because me and my sisters, I have three of them, and we're all pretty close, uh, three of us were going to the party. And, um, and she had gotten this really great dress. And I really wanted that dress. And I wanted it so badly that um, I really guilt-tripped her until she gave it to me. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, it's uh, so funny uh, thinking about um, our lives and how much remorse I have for um, using my... Um, my powers of manipulation and also because I was the eldest sister to um, um, get that dress from her. And then um, I'm also reminded of a story with not my past lover, Shah, but the lover before that who I was with for seven years who I um, also thought that I would spend the rest of my life with. And... Um, <laughs> And I remember we were driving to San Francisco, and I can't remember what we were fighting about, but we were, we were in the, her little VW fighting, and it was so bad, we actually got out of the car and were on the side of the road before we hit Ukiah, hitting each other, <laughs> because we were so angry with each other. So um, what, what is it that happens? What's going on when we find ourselves um, involved in um, these kinds of actions? And it's actually either desire or aversion, that root cause that the Buddha talked about, that brought about our suffering. It's those energies that we are projecting onto objects or situations or experiences. And that projection is based or fed, the spring of it is delusion. And delusion, which is in every moment of consciousness that's unskillful, has the characteristic of covering up the true nature of things so that we can't see them clearly. And so with every moment of clinging or aversion, there is always delusion. So there is always a covering up of things as they really are. That process, what's going on, is that we're actually projecting desire or aversion onto these objects of experience and seeing our experience Deep, in a deeply distorted way. So it's, it's just so great to begin to see what's actually going on. So then, why is this so critical? It's because the delusion is seducing us into thinking through this projection of clinging and aversion, that our happiness rests on owning, getting, or not wanting. So in that moment with my sister, I deeply believed that my happiness and my success and my sense of myself in the world was dependent on having that dress. You know, and just... To be honest, this is not the only example that I can come up with. <laughs> it, there's an ongoing stream of them. You know, and then the same with my ex. 
you know that that I was seduced into thinking that my sense of well-being, even if it's really a strong identification, my sense of survival is dependent on not wanting something to happen, on, on fighting, on even physical violence. So um, this, this, this movement of the mind happens personally. It happens interpersonally with my sister, my lover. It happens culturally and institutionally in things like racism, homophobia, classism, sexism, and ableism, where certain characteristics of experience are taken and projected onto with fear with loathing, with judgment. So the reality, the reality of us as just beautiful beings is covered over by people's projections of aversion. And that projection is named homophobia. And it gets institutionalized and codified in the the lack of civil rights that we have, for example. Or that it's it's kind of okay in some ways to beat us up and the police force um, cause that. That's, that's, the, that. that's the mechanism and we see it inside of ourselves and we see it in others and we're all doing it. We're all doing it all the time. So, so the, the, image, the image I have is... Um, Kind of, well, it's this too. It's kind of like a battery with all these wires going out. And um, another image that's sort of close to it, I don't know if any of you have it. Um, it's one of the tarot decks. And it's, I think it's the, it has this picture of an octopus. And on each hand of the octopus, and that, you know, the eight arms or many arms, there's like, a treasure chest of jewels and there's like clothes and there's, you know, this and that and the next thing. And it's kind of like we're this battery with, with wires, with octopus arms and all our energy is going out into this clinging or aversion to all these things in our lives. All our, you know, um, all our, 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 the places where we want and where we don't want. And how, how that clinging is held in place is because of not seeing clearly. It's because of delusion. It's because of this projection that's happening. We're actually skewing the things that we're tied into energetically. So um, well, I don't know if you've hung out with any you know, um, of the great teachers, but... Um, um, one of the characteristics that they have is incredible amount of energy. Like I, when I was in Nepal and hanging out with Sokni Rinpoche, we were just like going all day. You know, we were driving here for a blessing and then we were meeting people at the restaurant for lunch and then we were going to a teaching and then in the night we were doing something else. And I was like... Amazed, and my teacher Ruth Dennison was the same. She would just keep going on and on and on. And if you've sat a retreat with her, you know that's what she does. She, I mean, she can talk <laughs> nonstop for hours and hours and not be exhausted. I would be, and I'm half her age, wasted, you know. And it's because why? Because there's no there's no tentacles out in attachment. And so there's all this energy in the being to manifest for what's wholesome. It's so beautiful. So this, um, so this, um, these tentacles not only are moving out and and attaching themselves to um, experiences in our world, but we're actually creating a hierarchy. Which is, you know, which is what racism or sexism or homophobia is, is a hierarchy of what's good and what isn't good. Um, you've probably noticed that in your experiences, how you've taken certain experiences and said, 
I like this experience. This is a good experience. I don't like this experience. This is a bad experience. So we create this hierarchy of experience. And living in this hierarchy is extraordinarily imprisoning. Um, An example that comes to my mind is the story of ants, that every... um, Every rainy season, the snows go, and um, then the black flies come, and then it gets a little warmer, and the rains come. This is on the East Coast. I don't know why anyone's living there. (laughs) And then the rains come, and with the rains come the stream of black ants into the kitchen. And when they first came into the kitchen, of course, they went for my honey pot. I love to have honey in my tea. And, um, um, And I... You know, and it was like really irritating to have all these ants coming into the kitchen. And they would get in everywhere. They'd get in the garbage. They'd get in the compost. And it was like, okay, you know, I'd, I'd take the um, compost out of a lovely ceramic um, bowl that I had with a lid and I'd put it in an ugly plastic container with a screw lid. And then I would change the garbage things around and they would still come. And I would then... Uh, get a piece of paper with a bit of honey on it and entice the ants on and then take them out into the garden and, you know, there they would be back again. And um, this happened for a number of years and my first, in the first couple of winters, I really had this urge to kill them. I was like, I really want to kill you because you're a drag and you're getting into everything. (laughs) Uh, so I definitely had a hierarchy of experience. <laughs> and um, because I've taken the precept not to harm life, I refrained from killing them. And so I would work with, the, I would work with these urges. And then uh, last year, um, the same cycle happened. The snow melted. The black flies came. They kind of disappeared. The ants came. And... Um, and I, as that, I noticed the ants crawling into, um, crawling into the honey at the first of the season. I felt this, this deep sense of, oh, hi. <laughs> you're, you're back again. And it was actually a sense of, of in allowing them in and sort of recognition, like you're part of my life and part of um, my family, that this deep sense of homecoming came about, of of feeling that invitation that we're offered, of being really related to the whole world, of not feeling isolated from it. And that's, that's what happens when we're able to let go of our hierarchy of preferences, is that we feel this sense of deep homecoming, Um, And it reminds me of the story of Mother Teresa uh, when she um, came to the United States to visit and she was giving a talk at some big thing. And she said, "Um, you know, and here's this woman who has worked with such incredible uh, poverty and the one image that comes to my mind that's really stuck and that's maybe because I have such an aversive personality, is how she would um, bend down um, 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 on the streets in Calcutta um, when she came across someone lying um, with wounds on his body and maggots feeding off the wounds. And she would bend down and pick carefully the maggots out of the wounds of this... um, this homeless person lying on the street. And so I think, of, I think of that. And then I think of what she said in this conference where she said, you know, um, I have the deepest compassion for you Americans because I see a much greater poverty here than I do in India. I see the poverty of your spirit. And I think of that And I think she was noting the kind of hierarchy that we're caught in of preferences 
the ways that we are caught and bound by our desires and how isolated that that way of relating in the world is and how far removed we feel from that sense of belonging, of being at home in the family of things. So, um, so renunciation, I, I'm thinking about it a lot. Um, so renunciation is, is um, actually understanding that that place of homecoming that we so desire and seek for comes about through renouncing this hierarchy of preferences, this clinging and this aversion to not wanting experiences one way or wanting them another way. And um, I want to read what Eckhart Tolle, um, uh, what, what he says. The world promises fulfillment somewhere in time, and there is a continuous striving towards that fulfillment. Many people, many times people feel, yes, now they have arrived. And then they realize, no, they haven't arrived. And then the striving continues. It is expressed beautifully in A Course in Miracles, where it says that the dictum of the ego is, seek but do not find. People look to the future for salvation, but the future never arrives. So ultimately, suffering arrives through not finding. And that is the beginning of an awakening, when the realization dawns that perhaps this is not the way. Perhaps I will never get to where I am striving to reach. Perhaps it's not in the future at all. After having been lost in the world, suddenly, through the pressure of suffering, the realization comes that the answers may not be found out there in worldly attainment and in the future. That's an important point for us to reach, that sense of deep crisis. When the world as they have known it and the sense of self, when the world we the world as we have known it, and the sense of self that we have known that is identified with the world becomes meaningless. That happened to me. I was just that close to suicide. And then something else happened, a death of the sense of self that lived through the identifications. Identifications with my story, with things around me, with the world. Something arose at that moment that was a sense of deep and intense stillness and aliveness, beingness. I later called it presence. I realized that beyond words, that is who I am. But this realization wasn't a mental process. I realized that wasn't there before. When the inner transformation happened, oh, then that's, I want to stop there because that's going on to a different thing. <laughs> uh, um, so codependence is this. It's really, it's really this place where each of us here is a victim to circumstance and to the things around us because we are depending on other things for our happiness. And, and we're all doing it. And that, that, that dependence assumes that we will find happiness outside of ourselves, and mostly that we will find happiness outside of ourselves in pleasant things. And I think... Um, the story of the Buddha and his um, movement to, to the deep peace that Eckhart Tolle was also talking about is so mythical because it really addresses this deep delusion and codependence we have. Because he lived in the most exquisite 
conditions. I don't know if you've read any of the stories about the Buddha when he was a young man, but you know he lived in an incredible wealth and and his father um, gave him incredible food and there was incredible music and he could do whatever he wanted and there were you know tons of women that he was making love with and I mean it's like if you were to imagine for yourself the most exotic and exquisite sensual realm, the Buddha had it. And he was, and he was experiencing this. And, um, and it just, you know, and it wasn't doing it for him. <laughs> it wasn't doing it for him. And so I just want to acknowledge for us, uh, you know, um, the people who have um, been so caught in their clinging for profit, for money, for resources. And I just happen to think of Union Carbide because um, this fall there was the, I think it was the 25th anniversary, 25th anniversary of the, the toxic waste spill in India where um, I th- I think over 100,000 Indians have died from that contamination and where Union Carbide hasn't, at this point, um, um, told any of the Indian doctors who and clinics and the government what the chemicals were so they can actually help heal the Indians, nor have they made any financial reparation at all because... They don't want to lose the money. They don't want to lose their profits. So I'm thinking of very, ex- you know, very extreme cases of this clinging and holding on for money, for profit. And, you know, and I just heard one of the directors of Union Carbide, um, actually they've been taken over, I think, by Monsanto. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I just heard one of the, the directors speaking. And you know what? And so this is intense clinging. You would think with that kind of intense holding on to the resources that, you know, that it would bring happiness. He didn't sound happy at all. He didn't sound happy at all. So, um, and I don't know, I don't know um, just then on this, just to acknowledge on this very, you know, on the very small um, um, level that we all have here, because I'm just assuming none of us um, have access to those kind of Union Carbide resources or Monsanto resources as as primary owners of of, of um, that stock. But um, nevertheless, um, I don't think that holding on and clinging is so different from ours. And I just want to acknowledge here with us in our community, how much happiness has your holding on given you? (laughs) So going back to the story of my books and not being able to let them go, well, my dear friend Ilda here was staying with me just a few days ago, and she was traveling, and she, you know, she was reading one of the books on my shelf, and, you know, and she said, could I take it? And, um, and I said, yes, and here's another one, too. <laughs> and, um, and here's the thing, I really got, it's very humbling to say, I really got the, the incredible joy that happened in letting go of those two books. And I actually almost viscerally felt one of those arms that was so tied into my books let go and come back to me. And that kind of stillness that Eckhart, Hart, that Eckhart Tolle was talking about when we're able to renounce. Because what the Buddha went in search of was that kind of stillness. And he said, I have every sensual desire filled, and I can't feel any peace and stillness. I want it. And really, we're here to acknowledge ourselves as Buddhas, 
and to acknowledge as a community that we do seek deeply the sense of inner peace, of coming home to ourselves, of, of that deep at ease. And that we're also acknowledging to ourselves as a community that with all the resources each one of us has, and I know that we all have access to different resources, still, with all the resources we have, we're here because we're acknowledging that though they might make life comfortable and more pleasant, and, I, and my Camry definitely is more pleasant than my Toyota to sell, Still, I also have to sit here and acknowledge that my deep sense of ease and peace that, that has actually started to grow more inside of myself as I've committed to renouncing has come from beginning to renounce things and beginning to let go. So, so this is um, this this is um, the um, this is a deep invitation to loving kindness, because we're not awakened, we're not, and haven't been able to totally renounce. And so we hit over and over again our delusion into thinking that some future experience is going to do it, that some movement towards one thing rather than another, some pushing away is going to do it. And that is, that is how we are. And so we are invited not only to name it, but also to befriend it. So over and over again, there's that, that acknowledgement of, oh, here you are again. I see my desire and I see how strong it is, you know. And, and I'm opening to acknowledging it and befriending desire. Aha, here you are. May I open my arms to you and bow down to you. And in that relationship, there's some healing that happens so that we're not driven by it. When I think about this lineage that we carry of delusion and clinging and aversion, and I think of renunciation, I really want to acknowledge the deep blessing that my commitment to the precepts has brought me. Because over and over again, my commitment to it has given me the kind of structural help to let go. And I'm reminded of um, when I was married to Shah, it was before that we could get married, in um, Massachusetts, so we swapped rings under a Christmas tree. Actually, I gave her a ring. She gave me a Winnie the Pooh watch, <laughs> which, uh, I, um, which I love. And um, so, so we were in our relationship, and this is maybe seven or eight years into our relationship, and I went to a training. Actually, I went to a training on multiculturalism, and there was a woman there that we just really hit it off. It was electric energy. And um, there was a hot tub at the training center, and we had hot tubs together, and we were massaging each other, and it was hot. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And so we're driving back in the car home, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm in love with her. My marriage to Shah is a terrible mistake. And, and I'm in love with her. This is, this is what I have to do. And I was kind of, um, what can I say? Uh, uh, 
it was it was such an intense feeling that it was almost I was also almost nauseous my desire for her, and then and then just because I was committed to the precepts and non-harming around my sexuality, I checked myself and I was like, you cannot go there, even though my desire. Honestly, it felt like the truth. It felt like this really is the woman for me. I was like, you cannot go there. You, you absolutely have to not act on this. And so I go back to Shah. I didn't, I didn't tell her this you know, when I got back. <laughs> I thought back to my last relationship where I had felt desire for another woman and acted upon it and gone through total hell. I mean, the worst dukkha. And and had ended up in therapy and realized that actually I'd fallen in love with this other woman because I wasn't acknowledging some of the difficult feelings in our relationship. And so having had that experience and being committed to the precept, I asked myself, what's going on that I'm not wanting to acknowledge in this relationship? And what I got was that there were certain feelings of, of, of you know, just of, of hurt and of dissatisfaction that I hadn't been in touch with, that somehow had moved out into desire. And I think one of the great um, telling moments about the intensity of the desire is that it's often a reflection or a mirror of how deeply we've turned away from ourselves and the difficult spaces inside of ourselves. And so I think the more obsessive we feel and the more caught in addiction we are, the more that's indicative of certain feelings and spaces inside of ourselves that we haven't wanted to acknowledge. And so the beauty of the precept is that it helps turn ourselves to the very place that is most asking for our presence. But that delusion skews into moving out into often desire. I mean, sometimes it's self-hatred. Sometimes it's in doing things that, that you know, um, um, are, are harmful for ourselves. Um, you know, just like being, doing particular sports and not, like mountain climbing and not taking care to work, use harnesses. And I mean, it's, there's all many kinds of descriptions of that. So, so this process of desire actually is an expression of the place inside of us that is most calling our presence and awareness. And the precept is the kind of mirror that helps to redirect us back. It's a kind of way of saying, wow, look at what's going on. You need to come back. Um... So, um, so there are really um, um, the the precepts are this um, uh, mirror and also the vision of how of how we can live when we are not in projection and codependence. And um, another and another example comes to my mind when I um, last year I was at the forest refuge at a retreat for a month, and they said, um, you know, please have only a five-minute shower. <laughs> and um, I would, you know, get into the shower, and it would be like just a little longer. Oh, just a, it was so pleasant, you know. It was like. If it's this pleasant, how could it be wrong, you know? 
and um, you know, and so I would have my showers a little longer and surreptitiously creep away, hoping that no one saw me. And then um, one one time, one time, I just I was like, okay, I'm really just going to have my five minute shower, and um, and holding to that, and I and I'm giving this example as a precept because what what um, what came to me was that of not taking what is not freely offered, that I was actually taking something that wasn't freely offered. And I was like, oh, I really want to hold to this precept. I'm okay, only going to have a five-minute shower. And, um, and when I did, I walked out of it, and I felt so much love for myself that I was holding to the precept. You know, and that's what these teachings say, that that access to love comes from holding the precepts, comes from refraining, comes from renunciation. And that the challenge not only um, is the challenge working on us individually, but unfortunately, this delusion that we see in our minds has gotten so institutionalized in this culture. So we don't have very many reminders culturally and institutionally of this truth and really of how to come to peace. And that's why Sangha is so important. That's why coming together in retreats and coming together in sitting groups is so important because we have to remind each other of these truths because we don't get it outside. So, um, so, we, so we feel this... Um, this beautiful effort and commitment to um, take the precepts as a way to create structure for ourselves in this renunciation. Um, the precepts are a way of reteaching ourselves our loveliness. And um, there's this beautiful poem, one of my favorite poems I want to read. Um, Because the precepts are saying, here's the path to loveliness, here's the path to love. Um, uh, So the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow, and the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail. From the hard spinniness spiked out from the spine, down through the great broken heart, to the sheer blue milk and dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of Sal. So the reason um, that the refuges are the heart of these teachings and why traditionally um, in many Asian practices the refuges are taken before every sitting practice is that it's a reminder and um, uh, a telling of our vision of our loveliness, of the possibility of peace, and of deep ease. And then the practice is the cultivation of awareness so that we can begin to see the ways that we are tied and caught in a, in 
uh, deep victim relationships of codependence to experiences, to things, to objects, to other people. And to begin to renounce and relinquish that clutching or that pushing away so that we might come home again. Having said that, it also feels like we need to acknowledge that we're students on this path and that we forget over and over again. And that the lovely Dharma talk Larry gave last night of forgiveness is really about forgiving ourselves our forgetting and then recommitting. You know, and just to acknowledge that we forget over and over and over and over again. And because we forget doesn't mean that we don't start over and say, yet again, for the hundredth time I have forgotten, may I recommit to remembering where my true loveliness is. So I'll end with this poem, another of my favorite ones. But before I do, I think I just want to say um, something I think I shared in the group uh, with you all, uh, which is that I, I'm really feeling deeply what's going on in the world and what's going on in this country. Having lived in South Africa and lived in a fascist country, I feel how what's going on with the, with the, the loss of, of, of all kinds of civil rights in this country, an increasing fascism that is taking place. And um, actually, I was staying, um, I was hanging out with a friend whose mother was um, in Auschwitz. And her mother had said to her, I feel like fascism is coming to this country. I escaped to this country for freedom, and I feel like we're losing it. It feels like the same. I feel it's imminent the continuing loss of respect and freedom of most of us. I think it's a reality, and I want to acknowledge it rather than be in denial around it. I think the kinds of fascism that's taking place comes about not because of evil, but because of delusion, because of the mistaken idea of where profit, of where freedom lies, the mistaken idea of where it lies. It's not that the people instituting it in all those government departments in the House and the Senate are evil. It is just not seeing clearly because of delusion. And so I feel for those of us who have the special blessing of coming to a teaching that unmasks delusion, that, that it is, becomes increasingly important to take responsibility for practicing this unmasking. Because if we don't, who will? If we don't really take this relinquishment and renunciation so that we become lamps of love and kindness and respect and wisdom, so that we're manifesting this in our relationships, in our groups, in our workplace, so that we have the tools to begin to negotiate. If we aren't showing people how it can be, then we are lost. And who else is going to do it? And so when I talk about renunciation and my, uh, (laughs) this renunciation, and, 
you know, honestly, I can't say I'm always looking forward to it <laughs> because I'm not. You know, I don't think it's always a comfortable process. But I do feel deeply called to it, not only for my own peace, but for all of our peace, because it feels like there really isn't any time to lose. So, um, so I'm renouncing for all of us, but for the big all of us, because the call for love and the call for challenging ourselves is here. And it's the call is in the face of fascism and the loss of rights. Our rights, the, the movement, the continued movement to denigrate us as a community of GLBT people, the continual movement to denigrate and to um, persecute immigrants, um, particularly those from um, who are uh, followers of Islam, Muslims, the, the fact that those of us who are taking a stand are being arrested for longer, with less access to lawyers. I'm, it's just, you know, all the signs are here. <laughs> so we have to, there's, we just have to take the practice on. So here's Pablo Neruda, and he says, Now we will count to twelve, and we will all keep still. For once, on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now, I'll count up to 12, and you keep quiet, and I will go. The Buddha said we were living in a burning house and we couldn't see it. Our clinging and our aversion is the fire. Let us recommit 
to ending the fire. for your listening, everyone. Thank you. There, uh, there have been several retreats that I've been at um, where they've chanted the Metta Sutta, or it's not the Metta Sutta, it's the chant of Metta at the end in the evening, and I just find it so lovely, and I asked Arena if I could share it with you. Um, so just a, a couple of things before we start. Um, it's in Pali, obviously, and one of the reasons that I really love doing this is that it connects me, it connects us to our heritage, our lineage, and also to the Sangha all over the world because this is the, this is the way the chant was chanted at the time of the Buddha and it's still chanted in this language, in this way, all over the world. So whenever I do it, I feel connected because there's probably somebody in the world somewhere in Asia or Sri Lanka or some place like that doing the same thing. Um, the chant starts with just honoring the the three refuges, and then it goes through the same sequence that we're taught. Many of you probably are familiar with the metta practice, and it goes through the same sequence um, that we do the metta practice, starting with uh, um, offering metta to our our teachers, our benefactors. Uh, excuse me. Starting with ourselves, then our teachers and benefactors, then our Sangha, brothers and sisters, um, then to the gods and the devas, and then it goes through the whole series of of categories of beings, um, you know, creatures and beings and females and males and et cetera, et cetera. And then it um, ends with the um, the dedication of merit that 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 in many traditions is done at the end of a practice session. In the very end, it's uh, says sadhu three times, which means well spoken. It's sort of like Pali for amen. And just a couple things about the pronunciation. Uh, most of it's pretty phonetic, but the way that I learned it, um, the only things that are a little different is the, a V is pronounced like a W, and an M at the end of a word with a funny little dot under it is pronounced kind of like an ing sound. But don't get, you know, hung up on that. So we're going to do this call and response. So I'll say a line and then you can repeat it back to me. And if anyone isn't comfortable actually 
doing the chant or doesn't want to do it, then just feel totally comfortable just sitting and listening. Imaya Damanu Dhamma Patipatiya Buddhang Pujemi Imaya Damanu Dhamma Patipatiya Dhammang Pujemi Imaya Dhammanu Dhamma Patipatiya Sangam Pujemi Ahang Averohomi Abya Pajo Homi Anigo Homi Sukiatanang Pariharami Sukiatanang Pariharami Mama Mata Pitu Mama Mata Pitu Acharya Chadnyatimita Cha Acharya Chadnyatimita Cha Sabramacharino Cha Savramachari no cha Awera hon tu Awera hon tu Abya paja hon tu Abya paja hon tu Aniga hon tu Aniga hontu Sukiatanang pariharantu Sukiatanang pariharantu Imasmingarame sabe yogino Imasmingarame Sabe yogino Awera hontu Awera hontu Abya paja hontu Abya paja hontu Aniga hontu Aniga hontu Sukiatanang pariharantu Sukiatanang pariharantu Amakang araka dewata Amakang araka dewata Imasming vihare he must mean we had a. He must mean I was a. 
Let's just take a moment to allow the blessings that we have sung to pervade through this room silently.
our wishes for each other's happiness. And moving out into the night, touching the hills and the deer and turkeys, the birds, the managers and staff here at Spirit Rock. those that we love. Opening our hearts in well-wishing and including those that we don't. Allowing our hearts to stretch as wide as the world Thank you for your practice, everyone. Thank you. This talk was given by Arena Weissman at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 22, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.